Crossing another item off my bucket list, this week on Planetary Radio. Welcome. I'm Matt Kaplan of the Planetary Society with more of the human adventure across our solar system and beyond. Come with me deep below the University of Arizona's football stadium for a tour of the Keras Mirror Lab, where tons of molten glass are spun and polished to become the primary mirrors for several of our world's largest telescopes. Our guide will be astronomer Buell Genusi, head of UA's Department of Astronomy and the Stewart Observatory. We warned you, and it happened just as expected on or about November 17th. After three and a half years orbiting our planet, the Planetary Society's Light Sail 2 ended its mission in a fireball somewhere over Earth. We proved that a solar sail could be successfully deployed from a tiny CubeSat and that it could maintain its orbit by turning to face the sun and then turn away from it on every one of approximately 18,000 orbits. Hats off to the entire LightSail team and to the 50,000 society members and donors who made this triumph possible. LightSail program manager Bruce Betts will have more to say when we reach What's Up. And you can read more in the November 18 edition of the Downlink, our free weekly newsletter. You'll find it at planetary.org slash downlink. Check out the gorgeous image of the Gulf of Aden with our sail above it. Let's see, what else? Oh, Artemis 1 launched successfully and spectacularly. It has already made its first pass by the moon. All's well on the uncrewed Orion spacecraft, but some of the CubeSats carried by the Space Launch System rocket have not been heard from as I speak. They include the near-Earth asteroid or Neoscout solar sail. There's more, including the announcement of Canada's first lunar rover. The mission will be a collaboration with NASA. It's expected to launch as early as 2026. Many of you will remember that I was in Tucson, Arizona last September for the NASA Innovative Advanced Concepts Symposium. The visit also gave me the opportunity to meet the leaders of the Catalina Sky Survey and Space Watch. Both of these successful surveys are run out of the University of Arizona's Lunar and Planetary Lab. Next door to LPL is the Department of Astronomy that also runs the Stewart Observatory and the Richard T. Karras Mirror Lab. All three of these are directed by astronomer Buell Genusi. Buell and I met very early at the university's football stadium on the last day of my trip to fulfill a dream I've nurtured for a long time. Buell, as I was just telling you, this is a dream come true. I've been looking forward to visiting the Mirror Lab for at least 12 years now when we started to report on the Giant Magellan Telescope. So uh, it is an honor and a pleasure to be here. Thanks for hosting us. You're very welcome, and it's great to be able to share what we're doing with you and with your audience. So where are we headed? We're heading into the oldest part of the Richard F. Karras Mirror Lab. It's where we cast the mirrors. So you're going to get to see the spinning oven. It's not spinning at the moment, but it's the oven that's capable of spinning that is a unique aspect of how we make mirrors. And I encourage everyone who may be listening as we head down here uh, to go to the Mirror Lab site. You can check out a terrific video that shows you, thank you, as we go through a door, the entire process 
wow, you can probably tell now that we are in a big room. And what is this that we're standing in front of? So what you're looking at right now is a giant turntable that's capable of rotating an 8.4 meter mirror and its mold. If you look up to your right, you can see a large crane that is capable of lifting the lid of the oven and placing it in place after the mold has been constructed and the glass loaded and everything's ready to fire the next casting. I got to think that pretty much all of the hardware that we see in front of us here and in the rest of this huge lab is custom. This is not stuff that's off the shelf. No, this is not off the shelf. Um, Roger Angel envisioned how to make these mirrors over a period of 10 years. The mirror lab's been in existence for about 40. It's the product of the students and staff and faculty of Stewart Observatory and the College of Optical Sciences working together to do something that hasn't been done before, which is make large optics that are 80% hollow that enable us to then use really giant telescopes to learn about the universe. So I, I'm a big fan, well, of telescopes first, but I love going to Palomar, Mount Palomar, to see the Hale Telescope. It's kind of a shrine to me. And I even have a t-shirt that has yeah. the pattern, the honeycomb pattern of that mirror on the back of the t-shirt. So a similar construction where a lot of the glass is gone, it makes it a lot lighter, but that was ridiculously difficult to put together. They did not have the advantages of, of the sorts of technology and this basic technique that you have here. That's right. I, that's a lighter weighted mirror compared to mirrors of its day, but ours are much more lightweight or hollow. That's largely because the casting method includes taking up space with mold material that later gets removed, washed out. Um, so Roger and his colleagues could minimize as much as possible how much glass goes into to this mirror. Now, this is not the only way that you can make a giant telescope. There are at least three different techniques or technologies or design fabrication paths you can go down for making really giant mirrors and each of them have advantages and disadvantages. One of the advantages of our mirrors is that once you actually get the surface to the accuracy that you want and you put in a relatively straightforward support system, you don't have to worry about whether or not you're gonna be able to maintain your, your image quality. And for the giant Magellan Telescope, which requires seven of these 8.4 meter mirrors, all phased together, which we know how to do now, it means that we only have to change out a mirror for recoding um, on a much more leisurely time scale than some of the telescopes that are using thousands of segments. But the thousands of segments have the advantage that if you break one, it's a very <laughs> tiny fraction of your telescope. We have to make sure that that does not happen. We are not a uh, short, short order cook in a fast food restaurant. Um, the you know casting process takes a year to 14 months, whether it's a six and a half meter or an uh, 8.4 meter, and those are the two sizes we do. And then the polishing, uh, you know, can it, it's going to take right now, although we're working to speed this up, it, it takes, you know, two to four years to complete the polishing. At, lead on, because I, I know your time is limited. There's so much more to see here. Uh, we're going down a little spiral staircase now. Okay, deeper into the bowels of the uh, mirror lab here, and here is a work area with lots of benches and 
equipment. Oh, and we're under the turntable now? That's right. We're under the turntable. What you're looking at, it sort of looks like a merry-go-round. And uh, if they look at the mirror um, at the movie, I think there's a picture that shows the bottom. The information that all the sensors and computers on here get, all the temperatures, um, then get sent to a control room that's over there on the left. Mm -hmm. uh, and during the initial high temp casting and then cooling for three months, everything's being monitored 24-7. We have backup power. It's all to make sure that the glass anneals without having any stress left uh, in, the, in the blank. Oh my God. <laughs> I had another huge room. And, and we haven't said yet where we are. The so, location so, on this campus. Yeah, so we're, we're underneath the east stands portion of the U of A football stadium. Um, this football stadium has been here since the, the 1930s. Uh, Brian Schmidt, who was an undergraduate here and went on to win the Nobel Prize in 2011 for discovering that the uh, expansion of the universe is accelerating, along with his colleagues and a competing team, actually had his freshman dorm room was inside the, the stadium here because wow. uh, there's this on the southern edge there their dorms people ask why are you underneath the football stadium is it because uh, Chicago did astronomy in their football stadium no uh, or physics <laughs> in their football stadium We're, first first <laughs> nuclear reaction first right. fission reaction that's right. right that's yeah. right so there, there is a, a positive relationship between football and innovative science but <laughs> but the the reason we're here is because it's close to the astronomy department and optical sciences and there were big pillars of concrete that you could attach um, walls to and cranes so it's it's that simple and everything in here is incredibly heavy duty but I, I suspect it's a little like the Grand Canyon if you're not standing here you're not really going to get the scale of it you know that's a nice analogy I might use that sometime but <laughs> <Feel> <laughs> yeah. what you're looking at right now is in the center here is what's called the test tower. We, we named it after Dan Neff, who was one of the founding engineers of a company in town called M3 Engineering. They primarily work uh, with mining companies around the world to, to build complex uh, facilities out in remote areas. And they have worked with us in the past in building big telescopes, like the large binocular telescope on, on Mount Graham. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but Dan, Dan was one of the people that helped design the test tower. So what's the test tower? The test tower is what holds the mirror that you're testing, isolated from vibration. So these three big pillars that you see here are the corners of a triangular part of the floor here that's sitting on giant airbags so that we don't end up having vibrations from trucks or other, uh, other people going by. And then above it is a tower that, in this case, you can look up and see there's a four-meter fold sphere up at the top, that mirror. That was yeah, awesome. and we're looking up through a, a, a very high tower. I don't know how distant that is. With different levels, it's almost as if we were at a launch pad at <laughs> a Kennedy Space Center. It's not quite that big, but, it, but, it, but, it, but it is, I'm glad you're inspired by it. Uh, the, but it is not big enough to test a segment of the giant Magellan Telescope. You know, for your audience, the, the mirrors, the whole point of a mirror is to collect a lot of light, of these primary mirrors, collect a lot of light, but then bring it to a focus to make an image. And if you want to test the surface, you can't just use your eye and look at the surface and say, oh, that's right, that's the, that's the surface we want. You have to have a way of measuring it. And we're, we need to have the accuracy to be 
a fraction of you know the wavelengths that you're trying to uh, actually focus. So you need to actually shine light on the mirror and measure where that light goes. And when you can show that it's not exactly right, use math and computers to create an understanding of what, where the errors are in the surface. And then you go rub on any high points. And you have to be careful not to overcorrect or polish too much because there's no way to add glass back. So yeah. if you take away too much, you have to remove more glass from the rest of the surface to get the whole surface the way you want it. It reminds me of when I was uh, sanding a, an old wooden floor in my old house. And of course, if you, know, if you go too far uh, in any one spot, you're gonna have a little divot there uh, for the rest that's, of the life of that floor. That's exactly right. And so uh, the test tower is, uh, was originally sized for testing where the light would come to focus for an 8.4 meter telescope. But now we're testing a segment of a 25 meter telescope. So we want to focus the light where the light of a 25 meter telescope would focus. That's gonna be three times higher than where the 8.4 meter telescope was focusing it, and that would run into the football stadium. Mm -hmm. So we had to put that fold sphere to bend the light back so that we have a total path length, total distance that the light from the primary travels that is long enough that we can test the image quality from the mirror. Um, we have multiple different tests and then we need all of them to agree. They all have slightly different strengths in what they can test, so they, they are not a perfect substitute for each other, but you can require that they all be giving a consistent answer and that's what we do. And the mirror you're looking at right now is the third segment for GMT. We've just completed it. We're going through the formal acceptance testing. Um, and we have cast three others. So we've cast a total of six, and we're casting the seventh uh, this coming year in 2023. And that'll be it. And So, so we're, hope we're hoping to make one more, the eighth, uh, that would be swapped in to help um, just with logistics when we're recoding mirrors. But one reason I'm excited about getting the seventh cast and then finished is that is the minimum number, and then we'd be ready to go. Cannot wait, of course, to see that telescope reach first light. And it says right here, Giant Magellan Telescope, segment three. Here there's also a sign that says Interface, and that's the company that Richard F. Karras founded. Uh, it makes load cells for lots of applications, predominantly the oil industry. All right, we've just stepped through a doorway into yet another room and yet another amazing assembly here. What's, what's happening here? So this is what we call the integration hall. Um, so the mirror lab now has three big rooms, casting, polishing, and integration. Integration is where we put load cells on the back of the mirror, um, ways of supporting the mirror when it's in a polishing cell. It's also where we store mirrors while they're waiting for the next step. And what you're looking at here is a relatively new thing that, that Jeff Kingsley and I came up with when we were reali realizing that we were running out of space. And I said, can we have a CD rack? <laughs> and yeah. that's, that's what our engineers were able to, to come up with. I mean, you got three mirrors here stacked on this, again, very heavy-duty monster girders. And it is kind of like yeah. a, a little CD uh, storage system. Old enough to still use CDs, then <laughs> it's, it's like a CD rack storage. And so you can see here the, the fourth segment, which is the one that has the central hole in it. The central hole of that mirror uh. is 2.4 meters, which is the size of the Hubble Space Telescope. 
and then the fifth segment and the sixth segment. And behind us, a huge gantry that's going to slide those <laughs> gigantic CDs in and out. <laughs> that's right. That crane, uh, which can lift 55 tons, and these mirrors are around uh, 17 to 20, is the way we get them in and out. And then that doorway is how the mirrors leave the lab. I know it doesn't look like a door because it's the whole wall. The whole yeah. wall slides open. Absolutely magnificent. Do you remember the analogy that's used where if you like took a GMT mirror and it was as wide as the United States? Yeah, so, so if you were trying to make a mirror that is as accurate in terms of its surface as the GMT mirrors or the ones we made for the LBT and you thought of the mirror as being as big as North America, the biggest mountain range or valley that you could have would be about one to two inches. So the, the surface isn't flat, but it has to match what we want it to be to an accuracy of 20 nanometers. And we, we, we can't internalize what 20 nanometers means, but we understand what one inch is compared to North America. Yeah, absolutely. Astronomer Buell Januzzi of the Astronomy Department and the Stewart Observatory at the University of Arizona. The deluxe version of my Curus Mirror Lab Tour can be heard at planetary.org slash radio or in this week's podcast episode. Bruce Betts and What's Up are next here on Planetary Radio. There's so much going on in the world of space science and exploration, and we're here to share it with you. Hi, I'm Sarah, Digital Community Manager for the Planetary Society. Want more space? We've got the latest news, pretty planetary pictures, and Planetary Society publications on our social media channels. You can find the Planetary Society on Instagram, Twitter, YouTube, and Facebook. I hope you'll like and subscribe so you never miss the next exciting update from the world of planetary science. Hello, I'm George Takei, and as you know, I'm very proud of my association with Star Trek. Star Trek was a show that looked to the future with optimism, boldly going where no one had gone before. I want you to know about a very special organization called the Planetary Society. They are working to make the future that Star Trek represents a reality. Boldly go to build our future. Time for What's Up on Planetary Radio. Here is the chief scientist of the Planetary Society, Dr. Bruce Betts. He is also the program manager for the LightSail program. And Bruce, just as you predicted last week, uh, LightSail 2 is no more, except in our very fond memories. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yes, LightSail 2, as you probably mentioned, uh, deorbited, burned up. After three and a half years on November 17th-ish, the spacecraft is, is done, but the mission is not over as we continue to analyze data over the coming months and years. I think it will be a legacy for many, many, many years to come. Cool. That's just my opinion. <laughs> Don't go by me. <laughs> I mean, frankly, that's all that matters, Matt. Well, we'll have more. In fact, we will hear from the CEO, Bill Nye, about this uh, topic uh, next week when we also celebrate the 20th anniversary of Planetary Radio. There's still stuff up there, right? It didn't all fall and burn up. 
<laughs> no, but it's surprising how much stuff is falling down and burning up <laughs> on a regular basis. No, there are planets that are nowhere near us, so they don't have much of a chance. Although Mars is coming closer and closer, it'll still be a really, 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 really long ways away. But it will have its closest approach, so to speak, to Earth for the next 26 months on December 8th. What does that mean? It means it is really bright. I'm sorry, December 8th is when it's on the opposite side of the Earth from the Sun. Opposition, technically usually shifted by a few days due to elliptical orbits from the actual closest point. Anyway, it's going to be bright, and when it's something's in opposition, it means it rises around sunset and sets around sunrise. So you'll be looking in the very early evening over in the east. Later in the evening, higher up, it's really bright. It's almost as bright as Jupiter now. It's reddish because, you know, it's Mars. And it's cool. So Jupiter also up higher in the sky uh, over in like the south or just high up in the north if you're in the southern hemisphere. And Saturn farther towards the west looking yellowish and not as bright. And one more thing. We're getting to the winter hexagon, which I've mentioned before, but I mention it again. Later in the evening, if you look over in the east and it is... One, not winter in either hemisphere, but it will be soon, and it's named for the Northern Hemisphere winter. Sorry. Surprisingly enough, six stars form the hexagon. Really bright stars over a big part of the sky, including Rigel and Orion, and the brightest star in the sky, Sirius, and that will be up in the east, If you and Mars is inside the hexagon right at the moment. Sort of in between, but not quite, Aldebaran and Capella. You can find more information, including a uh, graphic of that at planetary.org slash night hyphen sky. Uh, moving on, uh, how about this week in space history? Sure. It was four years ago that NASA's InSight mission landed on Mars, giving us Mars quake information and other information about the surface and the interior of Mars, and is about to be decommissioned due to dust on solar panels. On to... Random Artemis 1, SLS, launched, launching Orion towards the moon. Orion will fly farther than any spacecraft built for humans, although it doesn't actually have humans in it yet. Any farther than any spacecraft built for humans has ever flown away from Earth over the course of the mission. It'll travel about a half million kilometers from Earth, or about uh, 64,000 kilometers beyond the far side of the moon, which puts it farther away than any other human-designed spacecraft. There, there will be humans in there eventually. Someday soon. Also, it'll stay in space longer than any human spacecraft uh, without, without being a space station, docking to a space station. But it will also, it's going to be hotter. It's going to return faster and hotter than ever before when it hits that atmosphere. Let us uh, go on to the trivia contest where I still manage to uh, confuse people accidentally, apparently. Sometimes I do it on purpose. Usually it's not. I'm confused by this one, but, but I suppose it was. I ask you, for whom are the two Viking lander sites named? Tell us how we did, Matt. It was quite clear to me. There were a number of people who sent in entries with the names of the regions on Mars that the two spacecraft landed in back in 1976. You know, thank you to those of you who went to the trouble of looking that up. 
I have the answer. I Please share. It's from Dave Fairchild in Kansas, our poet laureate. If you want some images from Mars of rocks and stuff, then look to find the landing spot that's named for Thomas Much. And then your project scientist at Gerald Soffin Station. It's no surprise we emphasize their Martian exploration. This person has not won in 15 years, almost exactly 15 years. One, that is amazing. <laughs> and way to go, persistence. And two, it is amazing that you have those records. Well played, sir. I don't this time. I'm not sure I would if I didn't have to check because Mike told me himself. Mike Tate in Texas. He said his last win was November 26, 2007, when we gave him a little piece of a Martian meteorite. Remember when we did that? Was... I do. I do. That was a, a very fine uh, prize. Well, anyway, then never mind on the compliment to you, just the compliment to him. Congratulations, Mike. You're back. The poem mentioned Gerald Soffen was indeed the project scientist of Viking. Uh, Thomas Much was the head of the lander imaging team, who unfortunately uh, much passed away during the uh, while the mission was still going along. Mike, before I forget, we should uh, remind everybody that we're going to send you a signed CD copy of the Moon Symphony composed by Amanda Lee Falkenberg and uh, available from Signum Classics, seven movements, each inspired by a different moon in the solar system. Highly recommended. It's on my Christmas gift list that uh, people heard me mention. Uh, Sarah and I talked about our choices on the Planetary Society uh, holiday gift list, not just Christmas, of course. Shall we move on? <laughs> yeah, it's time. The Artemis program has launched first SLS rocket. They named it Artemis partly uh, because Artemis was the twin sister of Apollo. The whole Apollo program, you may have heard of it, Matt, it went to the moon with humans. So here's something for you mythology fans out there. We all know, okay, maybe we all don't know, but a lot of people know Zeus was the, the father of Artemis and Apollo. Who was the mother in Greek mythology? Who was the mother of Artemis and Apollo? Go to planetary.org slash radio contest. Love these mythological questions. Uh, you have until the 30th. That'll be November 30th at 8 a.m. Pacific time. And some of you may have heard me mention that model of the giant Magellan telescope that uh, I built with my grandson. I told uh, Dr. Januzzi about that during our tour of the Mirror Lab. I've got several of these to give away. Uh, it's cool. from Skolas. Skolas, a Korean company. Uh, Buell mentioned that uh, it came out of their Korean partners on the Giant Magellan Telescope. It's really fun. It's, it's a neat thing to build four out of seven stars in terms of difficulty. It's a little bit of a challenge, but it's fun. I can tell, but I want you to be clear. You're not giving away the one you and your grandson made together. No. Oh, gosh, I, I guess I should clarify. No, these are in the package, brand new, unbuilt GMT model kits. Ooh, new and unopened. Nice. <laughs> All right, everybody, go out there, look up the night sky. And if a moon symphony is too much for you to create, to write, as it would be for me, what would your moon jingles sound like? Thank you. Good night. And the dish ran away with the spoon. I, I guess there's no music to go with that, but uh, you can come up with a jingle for us. Music. We're looking for the music. All right, music. never mind. Yeah, okay. I got the lyrics. Um, he's Bruce Betts, the chief scientist of the Planetary Society, 
who joins us every week here on What's Up. Congratulations on the completion of a three and a half year solar sail journey around the earth. Thank you. And thanks to all who made it possible, including the 50,000 individuals who gave to it and all of the staff, all of the people. I'm going to name every one of them if that's okay, Matt. I'll just... We're going to go now, Bruce. Okay. There was uh, <laughs> Bruce. Yeah, Matt was there for some stuff. Oh, we had the uh, project manager uh, for operations, uh, Dave Spencer and uh, uh, John Bellardo from Cal Poly San Luis Obispo handling ground communication and software, Barbara Plant from Boreal Space. Planetary Radio is produced by the Planetary Society in Pasadena, California, and is made possible by its far-sighted members. Mark Hilverda and Ray Paletta are our associate producers. Josh Doyle composed our theme, which is arranged and performed by Peter Schlosser. Ad Astra.